I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So often in life, we think we've made it. We come to these moments where we've worked things out and we've approached the problems and we've overcome them. And we look to ourselves like, man, this is working out. I've accomplished it. It's all going as planned. Until the moment that it doesn't. Until those moments where we realize that the things that we've been depending on to provide us with life and to sustain us, that all those things we've been relying on, actually, it's just an illusion. They're shaking and sinking sands. This week I saw a Calvin and Hobbes strip where, where Calvin has this moment where he's playing checkers with Hobbes as he often does and can never ever beat him. And then finally he beats Hobbes and he's got this moment of euphoria and, you, and rejoicing. I've achieved it. I've arrived. I've done all that I've ever wanted. And as he looks over on this new plane of satisfaction and victory, he kind of stops for a moment and, and then asks the question, is this it? Is this it? I think life is like that. So often we find that the career we always wanted isn't all that we hoped it would be. Or the kids that we dreamed of didn't make us happy. Or the health that we depended on failed us. Or the relationships that we held dear somehow changed and have left us disappointed. Or the life that we thought would go on for forever is suddenly cut short by death. See, it doesn't take much to expose how flimsy our hopes and our trust and the foundations for our life actually are. And the question for us is, is there anything that we can trust to give us life in a world as broken as the one that we live in with people in it like us who are as messed up and problematic as we are? Where can we look? Where can we turn to? Well, in 1 John, John's been going on and on like a broken record about his message. His message about life. His message that there is life in one place. His message to try to help the church to, to know that they're authentically receiving and living in this life that is in Jesus. And as John draws this letter to a close, he ends in a crescendo of confident encouragement to the church. And he's confident about one group of people. And he's confident about them for one reason. To these churches, John writes this in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Though these people have been so discouraged and confused by the false teachers that have come their way and that John's writing against, John ends this letter with this confident statement about them, that he knows they have eternal life. Don't worry. And why does he know this? For one reason. Because they have believed in the name of the Son of God. Because they trust in Jesus as taught by the apostles. And in this text, John encourages these people, these churches, because they've trusted in Jesus Christ with four incredible things that are true for them. Number one, that because they've trusted in Jesus and have eternal life, God hears their prayers. Number two, that God protects them. Number three, that God frees them. And number four, that God gives them the truth. And this promise and this confidence that John has for them, Christ City, is also true for us. We're going to walk through these four things in this text together. I want to invite you to be encouraged, to be built up in trusting in Jesus. The life that you have is true life. So look at the first thing Paul says about these people in verses 14 to 15. He writes, and this is a confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Christ City, when you put your trust in the name of Jesus, you have eternal life. And you can be confident that God hears your prayers. That's his first point. The promise in this verse is really staggering. John says, if we ask anything, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And I'll admit that most of the time I struggle to believe that that's true. And you probably do as well. Actually, in the beginning of his autobiography, George Mueller, he talks about this promise and how quick we are to disbelieve it. I was riding my bike a while back, uh, listening to some, po- or to some audio books, and this is one of them. And I was just so confronted by the way that George Mueller reflects on this text and others and actually responds to them in faith. See, George Mueller, he lived from 1805 to 1898. And he was a German pastor and evangelist. And he was challenged by this passage of scripture and others that are like it to actually believe it and to put it in practice in his life. And to live a life of faith and of prayer dependent upon God's will. Dependent on God, trusting in him, praying in accordance with his will. So as Mueller reads these passages and is convicted by them, he begins praying and looking for ways to glorify God in Bristol, England, where he lived. Asking for opportunities to serve him. And now many, many years later, we can look back and we can read about his life. And this life has become this incredible testimony that God does indeed answer the prayers of his people. You see, when Mueller began this life of prayer, there were accommodations for only 3,600 orphans in all of England. It's crazy. It was a time far before the large government programs that we have today. And there were twice that many children under the age of eight who were in prison, if you can believe it. But 30 years into his work with orphans, depending on nothing but prayer, putting his faith in God, he reported that 2,412 orphans were under our care. And five large houses at an expense of above 110,000 pounds were erected for the accommodation of 2,050 orphans. But maybe the more lasting legacy of Mueller is the way that his faith and ministry weren't alone. 
but the way that his faith and ministry inspired others to do the same. So that after 50 years after Muller began his work, at least 100,000 orphans were cared for in England alone. Praise God. What a testimony of answered prayer. But besides his work with orphans, which he's most famous for, Muller's organization reported 30 years in that they supported 120 missionaries. That they taught over 16,500 children in Bristol the Bible. That they had printed and distributed 44,000 Bibles and had distributed millions of booklets containing the good news about Jesus. You know what Muller credits all of this to? To praying in faith according to the will of God. And that's a significant point, I think, according to the will of God. That's not a throwaway statement. See, not all of our prayers are answered. I know that and you know that. I've prayed many times in my life for things that are not according to the will of God. I'll share with you one. I remember when I was in my early teens uh, playing different video games and actually praying that God would allow me to conquer certain levels in my video games. And then with embarrassment, I'll even say that actually I went back and found an old journal of mine not too long ago and saw the place where I'd written, prayed to God to beat level whatever in whatever game. God answered my prayer. I won. Just a really short prayer. Now, I'm not sure that that was an answered prayer or not, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't according to the will of God. The point John makes here is that God hears us as we pray according to his will, seeking his will, seeking his glory. That's the promise. So the late theologian John Stott, he writes about this and he says this, This prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, that we embrace it and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. In such prayers and only in such He hears us. He answers us. You see, Christ City, Jesus is the very best example that we have in Scripture that what John Stott is saying, what John the Apostle is saying is true. Because at the end of his life, Jesus began to set his face towards Jerusalem, to go up to Jerusalem in order to fulfill the work that the Father had given him to bring salvation to sinful humanity. But Jesus knew that that salvation would require him to be betrayed by his closest friends, to go to the cross, to be tortured, to suffer and die in our place for sin. And as he got closer and closer to Jerusalem, you can imagine Jesus weighed down more and more by the weight of what was approaching. Till in the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus cried out to God in prayer. And wept and was broken, crying out to the Father for some other way to save humanity. And yet even in his agony, Jesus prayed, Yet not my will, but yours be done. Christ City, I want to ask you a question. Do you think our prayer should be anything different than our Savior's? See, to pray according to God's will requires that we must die to our own. 
But Christ City, God's will isn't second best. I think that's what we worry about, isn't it? We think God's will is somehow going to be less good than my will. That's not the case. When we look to Jesus as our example, we see that because as Jesus submits to God's will, as he suffers and even dies, it's through that death that God the Father raises him to life and exalts him as the king of king of all things and sets him as a savior of the world, the one who brings eternal life and resurrection to billions in this world trapped in death and in sin. You see, submitting to God's will is the pathway to life. God listens to our prayers. He hears our prayers as we pray like Jesus according to his will. And now because John is confident that God hears our prayers, that he listens to them, the first thing John urges us to do in light of that is in the next couple of verses. The first thing he urges us to do then is to pray for one another in the church. Look at verses 16 and 17. John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, I think what John's doing in verses 16 and 17 is really just giving us a bit of an aside coming out of the previous verses about prayer, about the importance and the power of our prayer and how to apply it in community in the local church. And these verses, they are another one of those times when John gets a bit confusing. We read them and we kind of get lost in the maze. But the main point here is this. John wants us to pray for one another when we see sin in one another's lives. John wants us to pray for one another when we see sin in one another's lives. And he knows God will hear our prayers. He shall ask, he says, and God will give him life, the person who's been caught in sin. Now, I realize the sin leading to death part in this passage is a bit confusing, especially the sin leading to death and the sin not leading to death. What's going on here? You know, what kind of debates are going to happen in your community groups as you look at this and try to figure it out? I think there's an easy answer. Let me put it simply. See, when John speaks of sin leading to death and not leading to death, John is speaking in the context of what he's already said in this letter. And he knows that there are those who have rejected the apostolic teaching about Jesus. They've rejected the word of the apostles about who Jesus is and what he's done. And they become hardened in their unbelief. They're unrepentant. John even calls them antichrists in chapter 2, verse 18 of the same letter. Well, I think it's this unrepentant rejection of the good news about Jesus that is a sin that leads to death. Unrepentant rejection of Jesus is sin leading to death. But what John is urging us toward isn't praying necessarily for those things, though he doesn't forbid it. It's praying instead for brothers and sisters that we see in the church community who are struggling with sin. He wants us to be praying for one another in that way. So let me ask you, Christ City, what do you do? What is your first impulse when you look out at the congregation around you? When you look in my life, and you see sin. What's your first impulse? Is your first impulse to pray for the person in sin according to the will of God for repentance, for faith, for freedom, for growth in Jesus? 
Or is your first impulse maybe to, to gossip about it? Or maybe to, to judge that person? Maybe to compare yourself to that person and begin to feel a bit better about yourself because of what they're struggling with. See, the gospel isn't about our perfection, Christ City. The gospel is about our repentance. We can be confident that God's will is for us to turn again and again and again to him in faith to receive the forgiveness that he offers as we repent from our sins. Jesus never turns repentant sinners away. If we confess our sins, John writes in 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteous prayers. So Christ said, John encourages us, God hears our prayers. Die to your will. Live to the will of God. And pray for one another in the church as you see sin. Pray that God would bless us and grow us in the life of Jesus. Now, the second thing that we know that John encourages us with is that God protects us. Christ City, when you trust in the name of Jesus, you have eternal life. And you can be confident, not just that God hears your prayers, but second, that God protects you. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, we've covered this territory before in the letter of 1 John. But let me say it again. John is not saying here that Christians never sin. He's not talking about some perfectionism in Christian life. John is saying that those who are born of God are characterized by something different, by repentance. As they turn again and again from their sin as often as is needed to receive the forgiveness that is in Jesus. But that repentant faith, it does something to us. It leads to a changed life. As we receive God's love for us, it changes us. He, he loves me even though I'm such a great sinner. He loved me before I even loved him or served him. As I receive that from him, it softens my heart. It fills me with a loving response where I want to obey and serve him, where I start to long to obey and to follow God more and more and to please him in my life. Because he's first, love me first. We love to obey him. We don't keep on sinning. Rather, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What John is saying, Christ said, is that God protects his children. God is a father who protects his children. Now, I know that it's Mother's Day and that Father's Day is a little ways away, but uh, as I was working on this ser sermon, I found this list of articles talking about a number of the ways that we've seen fathers in history spend their lives in protection for their children as they face horrors to save their kids. And one of the stories that I was reading about that struck me was the story of this Australian father named Andrew Leach. You might have seen his video. It was floating around on the internet for quite some time. Because surveillance cameras recorded this scene as this out-of-control car smashed head-on to the storefront where he and his son were standing at nearly 45 miles an hour. And instinctively, Leach bends over in the moment that he has to think about what he's doing, and he picks up his son into his arms, and he takes the full impact of the car, but his son is kept safe. Now, thankfully, both he and his son survived, but as you can imagine, Leach's legs were crushed. 
And he said in an interview afterwards that he remembers thinking, I can take the hit. I can repair. But there's no way that my son can. See, the confidence that John has toward believers in Jesus is like this. That God is a father who protects his children. That God is a father much greater than than this man or any other and his ability and his love and his sacrifice to protect his own kids. You see, God planned to willingly be crushed, not by a car, but under the weight of sin and judgment in order to save us. And now God protects us and empowers us with us and is working all things for good in our lives. It's the kind of God that he is. For us, protecting us, loving us as a father. That's good news for us. Christy, that means that if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus today, if you put your trust in him for your salvation, no matter what you are facing this morning in your life, it's going to be okay. God is with you. He is for you. He's working to protect you. He protects his children. And if he protects his children, that means that a weak and a small and a flawed person like me can be bold and courageous to live for him in this world. Because I know who's standing behind me, who's with me, who's next to me, protecting me. Just like David. David, who was small and weak, just a boy, when he went to fight Goliath. But David did it with confidence, not that he was strong, not that he could do this in and of himself, but trusting that God who loved him and was for him, who was for his people Israel, could work salvation through him. Christ City, you who believe in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, it is you who God strengthens and protects He's with you. He is for you. Be bold and courageous. You don't need to be afraid. See, when you trust the name of Jesus, you have eternal life. God hears your prayers. God protects you. And the third thing John is confident about is this. God frees you. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's two options that John describes in this, in this verse. One, lying in the power of the evil one. Not struggling for freedom in the power of the evil one, but just lying there, trapped in the power of the evil one. Or on the other hand, being from God. Being from God, freed to live as his children in this world. Christ said, you need to realize that this world is not a neutral place. Our modern world would have you believe that we live freely as mature and rational beings, making our choices autonomously with complete freedom as we live our lives. But John says otherwise. John says, apart from Jesus, you're not free at all. He says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And apart from God, we're enslaved to sin and we're actually held captive in that slavery to sin. It's not just our sinful bodies that are enslaved. It's us held under the power of Satan in our slavery. And I think we know this. Because I think that we've experienced it. 
I want you to stop for a moment and think back to the days before you trusted in Jesus. Think back to your struggle with what you now recognize as sin. Now, I realize that you still struggle today, but is a struggle different now than it was then? It should be. As I look back on my own life, I see change and I see growth. I see as I've trusted in Jesus, there's progress. I'm becoming more like him. It's often very slow. It's often two steps forward, one step back. But over time, I can see the growth of obedience and change in me as I'm freed from sin, walking with Jesus. But before I knew this salvation in Jesus, it wasn't like that. Before this, it was only slavery to sin all the time, and I hated it. I was deceived by it. And like quicksand, the more that I struggled against it, the more that I found I was caught, I was stuck, and there was no way that I could get out. John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Not just because of their sinful desires, but because of the lies and the power of Satan holding us under in our sinfulness. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But not those who are in Jesus. Not those who have trusted in the name of Jesus, the Son of God. We who have trusted in him belong to him and we are free in him. Now, I don't know who watching this needs to hear this this morning. But let me say it plainly and simply. God through Jesus Christ, who he sent to be the savior of this world, God can free you. No matter what it is that you are struggling with or wrestling with, the ways that you feel lied to and deceived and trapped, the way that you feel that you are giving in to the temptations to sin that are holding you under, Jesus can free you from sin. I want to call you and ask you, won't you come to Jesus to confess to him the ways that you have rebelled against him? Confess to God that that what you're doing and what you've been believing is sinful. It's, It's opposed to him. Agree with him about that. Get on your knees in repentance. Say, God, I don't want to be part of this old way of living anymore. I want to submit to Jesus. I want a new king, a new authority over my life that's not me anymore. I want to walk with you in freedom. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus can and will set you free as you call on him to save you. He'll rescue you from the power of the evil one and he's going to make you his. There's this really, really beautiful way this old catechism talks about this salvation. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. It talks about the way that we've been saved in Jesus. I want you to hear this with me. It's in the form of a question and an answer. The question is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. 
Christ City, this is the freedom that can be yours in the gospel that we need to remember is ours in Jesus Christ. We are free. We are from God. We aren't enslaved to the power of the evil one if we're trusting in Jesus. And the confidence that we have in trusting in Jesus, the Son of God, means that God hears our prayers, God protects us, God frees us, and lastly, that God has given us the truth. Look at what John writes. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God and eternal life. Notice what this text says. It's not just that we have believed something true. That's true, that we believe something true, but there's more than that here. It's that we are in him who is true, that we are in Jesus who is the truth. See, into a world of lies, Jesus has come. Into a world of lies that tells us life is this way. Flourishing is over here. Come follow me. Come this way and I will lead you into blessing. In a world that lies to us, Jesus has come and he speaks the truth, not leading us to death, but leading us to life. He's come into this world saying, I am the resurrection and the life in John 11 verse 25. Or saying, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent in John 17 verse 3. Christ City, Jesus is the truth. And you know him. Not just intellectually with your minds. You know him truthfully with your heart, with your will, and with your desires. It's this Jesus who has first loved you, who's caused you to love him. As his spirit confirms his truthfulness within you. It's this Jesus that you long for and you desperately wait for and look forward to his return. It's this Jesus who gets your pulse racing when you're talking about him, when you're worshiping him, when you're full of joy in his presence. It's this Jesus who, when you read the gospels, you see and you love as you watch him teach and rebuke and love and show mercy and grace to those who are repentant and oppose and confront those who are rebellious. It's this Jesus that John says is the true God in eternal life. What an incredible thing to say. Jesus Christ isn't just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not the Jesus that is according to the teaching of the false teachers in the church of Ephesus. He is true God and eternal life. And because he is true, because he is eternal life, no matter what you suffer for him now, you will soon be vindicated. Christ City, history is going to bend to the final moment when God's proved true and everyone else has proved a liar. There's going to be a final fact checking. And that will be brought to their knees in submission and worship and obedience before the truth, before Jesus Christ, true God and eternal life. Look at the way that Paul writes about this in Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11. And Jesus being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus Christ, who many thought was over and done with because of his death, is exalted through his resurrection and will be seen in glory and every knee will bow before him. He is the truth. Now, as we conclude, I want to share something with you. I'm going to share a bit of a a testimony and talk more about this trusting in Jesus. See, last year I woke up to my daughter screaming early in the morning. And as Heather and I tried to care for her, we began this this long path of dealing with my daughter's epilepsy. And she had her first tonic-clonic seizure. And in that moment, we, we saw her as her skin was turning ashen gray, as her body was seizing, as her eyes were, were changing, we saw that we couldn't reach her. We realized that she'd stopped breathing and we called the ambulance and we waited. And in that moment where the precious life of my daughter hung in the balance, there was nothing that I could do. And I felt helpless as I placed my trust in the paramedics and doctors to do what I couldn't. Now, praise God, my my daughter's seizures are under control and the doctors have a good prognosis for her. But I share this story to remind us that our salvation is a little bit like my experience in that moment. Because when it comes to finding true lasting life, we are utterly helpless. The only way we can receive it is by putting our trust in someone who can do what we can't who can lead us to the life that we can't achieve on our own. See, John wrote in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And he wrote that because he's confident about this one group of people, not the overachievers, not the especially pious, not those that had the biggest laundry list of good works in their lives. But those who recognize that when it comes to life that we really long for, we are utterly dependent on Jesus Christ to provide it for us. See, our problem, Christ City, is that we forget the good news of the gospel that God's provided what we can to achieve in Jesus. We forget it every single day of our lives. As we instinctively turn away from reliance upon Jesus back to relying upon ourselves in some way. If we're especially spiritual about the way that we turn to ourselves in self-reliance, what happens is that we try to be good Christians. We try to work hard by doing better, trying harder. And on a good day, when we're unaware of the sin in our lives, we feel pretty good. And we become unbearably proud as we look down on everyone else. We... In our own strength, we've arrived. We're doing well. Have you seen how much time I spend in my devotions? Have you seen the way that I love other people? But on the flip side, on the bad days as we're self-reliant as Christians, it's also ugly. On the flip side, we just see all the ways that we failed. How again and again and again, we can't live up to what scripture calls us to. And we live with this deep sense of condemnation and guilt and shame that we can't get out from under. And if we're not especially spiritual about our self-reliance, maybe there's some of you here who don't really know what you think about Jesus. In your self-reliance, I think you just build your confidence on your success or your inherent goodness or maybe your friend's opinions of you. But let me ask you, how has it been going? 
Can your self-reliance on your ability or your philosophy, philosophy or your spirituality, can it handle the real storms of life? Can it deal with COVID? Can it deal with the day when the wasting disease comes for you or a loved one? When failure confronts you and you're not winning at life anymore? I'm not sure it will. See, Christ said, John, in this letter, he bears witness to a better truth and a better Savior than self-reliance, than relying upon ourselves for the life that we try to find. He's confident about his readers for one reason. It's this. It's because they've entrusted themselves to Jesus. Eternal life. The true God who is sent. They entrust themselves to Jesus to forgive them, to protect them, to empower them, to give them the life that they can't get on their own. So this morning as we close, let me invite you, won't you turn with me again to Jesus in faith to receive what only he can give. Stop trusting in yourself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we worship you. You have done what we can in sending Jesus your son. You have shown mercy and love and grace to us who need it so desperately. Lord, won't you help us confront our pride, bring us to our knees, humble our wills before your will, that we would find life that is truly life every day of our lives in living for Jesus, trusting in him, receiving the grace that he offers. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.